Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The 43rd federal election is right around the corner, and parties have been on the stump telling us how great things are going to be. But talk of a potential recession and what they would do to protect the Canadian economy has been noticeably absent on the hustings. Writing for the C.D. Howe Institute, economist Glenn Hodgson tells us recessions are hard to forecast. But should those who want to lead be preparing for one? I put that to the Institute's president and CEO, Bill Robson. We started by discussing the lack of evidence that the parties are taking today's economic climate into consideration. Not much, no. The election campaign hasn't been about that. Nobody likes to talk about uh, a possible downturn during an election campaign. Uh, and it is too bad because the promises that we're seeing uh, involve big increases in spending, uh, larger deficits than what we've been running over the last few years. And this is a time when the fiscal balance ought to be quite healthy. Uh, if you think of the normal prescription that people make for stabilizing policy, it's that when the economy is strong, you let revenues go up and spending uh, uh, decline, as it's likely to do, less income support, less stimulus, uh, the budget balance improves. And when there's a downturn, you're all set up to let the opposite happen. You let your revenues fall, spending's going to ramp up a little bit, and you're going to uh, see the budget run more into deficit. The interesting thing about it is that so much of it can just be automatic. You don't have to be particularly foresightful. You, you set yourself up so that you can let the budget balance swing uh, in that way. Uh, and we've seen that in Canada. It's often been done. The federal government, after the 2008-2009 crisis, did a pretty nice job of going into deficit. And then when the economy recovered, uh, getting back into surplus. Uh, right now, we ought to be in the black. And it's discouraging to see that the election campaign is focusing so much on uh, getting... They're not necessarily highlighting this, but in the Liberal platform, it's clear... Uh, they want the deficit to get bigger uh, on the back of some very big spending increases. It just doesn't seem like the right time. Particularly considering if we enter a recession with the BOC, with the overnight lending rate at one and three quarters percent, it only has a few bullets left that it could use to shoot down a recession. Yeah, it's a very uh, salient point you're making because a lot of people, as they've looked at how central banks have uh, had all this quantitative easing, interest rates as low as they are, negative in many places, including bond yields negative in many places. Uh, the thinking is we're at a point when monetary policies, conventional tools uh, really don't seem to be working all that well, and they may find that they just don't have effective ammunition. Uh, if that's the case, you would look to fiscal policy to do more. And in Canada, we do have the balance sheet to do it. Uh, I'm not calling for the end of the world here. But one of the things that seems to be quite important when you have a fiscal stimulus is uh, whether people have the confidence that the government is going to come out on the right side of it. Uh, in other words, if you see it as a temporary deficit, there's temporary support for the economy and you're confident that as you come through that everything's going to be back to normal, uh, then you're likely to respond exactly the way that the textbooks say you should. If, on the other hand, you see the bottom fall out and the government seems to have no plan to get back to balance and you've got the example of Argentina or other countries to look at, um, then the possibility that the, the private sector just reacts badly to this becomes much more salient. So you really want that kind of... Uh, 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 that road back to balance to be there in people's minds if you're looking for that kind of stimulus from fiscal policy, especially if with central banks not that able to act, fiscal policy is the only game in town. So if the Americans cut interest rates by 75 basis points, as some are predicting, then that means that the BOC is predicted to follow suit. That puts us at 1%, probably the limit as to how they can help. So what of the platforms? The Liberals are looking to spend. The Conservatives are looking to cut taxes. Is the fiscal stimulus on the Liberal side enough to ride out a potential recession, 
Or what are the implications of conservative tax cuts coming in the door for revenue for Parliament Hill? One of the things that I like about tax cuts is that they tend to produce uh, an offset over time if you have a stimulus to economic activity. Uh, and some types of tax cuts are likelier to do that than others. Corporate income taxes particularly are levied on a very elastic base. So if you do cut the corporate income tax rate, you're likely to see the base expand and that's going to help you get back to balance. And in the meantime, uh, the economic activity that you've stimulated is going to be beneficial for the economy. Spending tends a little bit to be uh, immediate gratification and then none of that sort of long-term payback, especially with the economy operating as close to capacity as it is. I mean, Canada right now, inflation is pretty much at target. Maybe that's worth just underlining for this conversation. I mean, the economy is not in a bad place right now. Many of the things we're concerned about are much more prospective. One of the reasons we'd like to see the budget balance in the black right now is because the economy is doing quite well. If you increase spending in that kind of an environment, You'll, you might get a little bit of a hit to consumption, but we've already got this big current account deficit. I mean, we're importing more than we're exporting. Uh, and so that what that tells you is that the economy is running at capacity. You're not going to get any kind of lasting boost from spending more. And in all likelihood, it's going to be uh, sort of here today, gone tomorrow with no lasting benefit for the economy. I will mention also, because we've been talking about the uh, the fiscal policy through the cycle uh, issue, that there's some evidence that when governments are consolidating, uh, they get way more uh, economic benefit. There's way less short-term damage to the economy from the budget uh, uh, being cut uh, if the cuts are on the spending side than if they happen through tax increases. Uh, the, this is based on international evidence. You can think of some really salient examples. If you look around the world, Japan notoriously increased consumption taxes, and it was a complete flop when they were trying to get their budget balance into some kind of better shape. So it does matter whether it's taxes or spending that you're uh, using. Uh, in the end, though, I think what's the most straightforward thing for people to be thinking about is the budget balance. Uh, is it in the place where it ought to be for this part, part, point in the cycle? I would argue not. Uh, does that set us up well in case there is a downturn? Certainly not, because we'd rather go from the black into the red with modest numbers than from already a fair amount of borrowing to a much larger amount of borrowing, which is bound to make people wonder, hey, in the long term, uh, do we really have the plan to get ourselves out of this? Tell me about the delayed effect of corporate tax cuts, because we know that when the BOC makes a decision on interest rates, that's a decision you make based upon where you see an economy six to eight quarters out. What's the lag effect of when a corporate tax cut makes its way into the economy? It takes, there, there's some very short-term effect uh, because companies always have options for where to record their profits. Uh, and I know that there's a lot of concern these days about uh, base erosion, profit shifting, uh, multinationals not paying their fair share of tax. But in an integrated economy with supply chains going all across borders, it's very hard for governments to police all the ways that you can affect where you are recording your revenues. So in the short run, just as with uh, personal income taxes, when there's a change in high income tax rates, you'll see some immediate reaction from people who can time dividends and so on. With corporate taxes, there's likely to be a fairly uh, sharp short run response as well. Once that plays out, it's all a matter of uh, the longer term impacts of where actual business activity is located. Where are they doing their production? Where are the sales happening? Where are the people employed? 
And that sort of thing takes a little bit longer. But in general, the consensus among economists is that when you think about the broad tax uh, bases that you have, you've got consumption taxes, you've got personal income taxes, you've got corporate income taxes. Generally, the one that, where you would expect to see the least response from the economy in response to a change in rates is consumption taxes. Personal income taxes are somewhere in the middle, and corporate income taxes are at the higher end. In fact, uh, Bev Dalby, who's done some work for us on this, uh, has calculated that in several provinces, the corporate income tax rates are actually high enough that they would gain revenue if they were to reduce the corporate income tax rates. In other words, they're on the wrong side of the Laffer curve that talks about revenue yield per change in the tax rate. Whoever ends up prime minister after the October 21st election is likely or possibly going to have to deal with a recession. As Glenn Hodgson had told us, all recessions are notoriously difficult to predict, although people do love to do it and many try to make a name for themselves trying. Well, it's quite possible that there will be one. Uh, a lot of indicators are flashing yellow. Uh, Glenn has made the point that it's likely to be something imported. Uh, we have trade, trade war related. Yeah, tra yeah, exactly. Trade tensions around the world are they're hurting China, they're hurting the United States. Uh, they're, they're hurting everybody, and Canada is very exposed to that because we're a very open economy. So uh, that's a likely enough scenario. I wouldn't rule out the possibility of something domestic happening in conjunction. Uh, at the moment, uh, I'm not, I don't lose sleep over the housing market, for example, even though it does look quite overheated in places because the fundamentals are pretty good. Immigration is good. Income growth is continuing with interest rates this low. The debt servicing burden is not that outrageous. Uh, but whenever you see something that's looking a bit hyperextended, you have to worry about a correction uh, because so often in the past when we've seen uh, very excited markets, whether it was the the tech bubble, as we now call it, but it didn't appear that at the time, or, or housing in the mid-2000s, you know, people typically weren't calling for that kind of a correction, so it kind of comes on you suddenly. One way or another, it's only prudent to imagine that there's going to be some softness and maybe even some quarters of negative GDP growth over the next few years. The federal government has ways of cushioning that. It has some automatic stabilizers. Uh, the unemployment insurance program is a classic one because that's an account that is going to be collecting more premiums from employed people when times are good relative to what it's paying out to the unemployed. When times are bad, the opposite happens. Fewer premiums collected uh, and, and, and more payouts. So there are things that the federal government's going to be doing uh, just by way of automatic stabilization of the economy. Uh, what I do think is problematic is that We've had now a couple of rounds of stimulus uh, with big commitments to infrastructure spending. Uh, the Conservatives did it in response to 2008-09, uh, and what they found, as has uh, there, there are sort of stories about this in Ottawa, oh, we'll pull a project down on the shelf, and then somebody actually goes to the shelf expecting that there's going to be like feet of all these amazing projects ready for the government to uh, support. It turns out there isn't very much. Uh, governments do invest a fair amount in infrastructure and the stuff that you need to patch and paint and uh, you know things that you can do quickly well a lot of that's already underway so they didn't have as much scope to operate as they thought for the liberals with their big commitment to spend on infrastructure there's been very very little result of that partly for the same reason a lot of what needs to get done is done already and then also what needs to get done uh, provincially municipally so some of the tools that you'd like to see them use really uh, uh, aren't 
necessarily going to be all that effective on the discretionary side. And one of the reasons I emphasize the importance of the automatic stabilizers is that we've seen periods in the fairly recent past, even when those were allowed to work, and they do cushion the cycle. They do mean that a government that is uh, got a slightly longer term view isn't going to be uh, alarming people or upsetting people by changing tax rates, by changing program structures because they've got to hit some kind of bottom line target. You want to just let it happen. So I would be very happy to see the federal bottom line better, healthier than this election campaign is certainly projecting it to be. Ideally, back in the black, nobody's talking about that, so leave that aside. But small deficits, close to surplus, so that we could let that swing happen. And uh, it would, I, I think it would cushion the cycle. And I think it's always helpful when there's a downturn for the government not to be racing around, uh, uh, trying to do all these things and, and ad hoc responses just because they have to be seen to be doing something. When, in fact, there are plenty of things in the budget that just adapt on their own. And one of the best things that a government can do is to say, stay as we go. We're going to go through this swing. Uh, we're going to support the economy in the ways that uh, uh, we do, uh, but then not create some kind of crisis in people's minds by uh, shooting for the moon fiscally, causing the deficit to get much, much worse, uh, and, and potentially also even increasing taxes or something, uh, which is bound when the economy isn't very healthy to cause people to wonder, uh, what's going on and do I even want to be here? You'd mentioned the housing market. I was always taught that the housing market is the canary in the economic coal mine. And if that's the case, what's your take on the conservative talk of increasing the amortization rate on mortgages to 30 years, something we clawed back at at the height of the financial crisis because we recognize the bubble that can create? You're smirking. Why? Well, I, I I don't have a problem with long amortization periods on mortgages as long as the structure of the payments uh, doesn't kind of lure people in on the basis that they'll be able to live in their house for free for a few years before it starts to before it starts to pay. It seems to me to make sense to have uh, mortgages at a variety of maturities. There are things that we could do to lessen the kind of five-year renewal cycle, maybe lengthen that a little out from what we have right now, um, and uh, uh, generally allow people to pick what suits them better and, and, and lenders as well as the borrowers. Uh, what is concerning is when you see people looking for ways to make home ownership more affordable for people who really ought not to be in the market. We've got this proposal uh, recently, not in the election campaign, but previously, and it looks like it, we might be uh, uh, doubling down on that uh, to allow uh, the CMHC to have an equity stake in people's homes. This just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, home ownership is something that we do want people to have, but we want them to have it in a way that uh, uh, it reflects what they can afford. Uh, and when governments start to mess with uh, housing policy, uh, we see abroad more than here, and I don't want to see it happen here. When governments start to mess with it, they often time it extremely badly. Uh, the United States right next door to us has had uh, cycles roughly every generation. Uh, they do happen with quite a bit of frequency. You can actually go back to before the Second World War uh, to see how there's been this impetus to get people into houses, uh, and there have been various doodles uh, with their, uh, their, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, their, their lending. Uh, and it makes me feel like we didn't learn the lessons from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. No, the, it, Canada has been remarkably restrained in doing that. Uh, and so I take great comfort from our record, uh, but I wouldn't like to count on us being permanently smarter for some reason I don't understand. 
so now is not a good time for us to be trying to juice the housing market up further because it has been very strong for a long time and notwithstanding the fundamentals. When you look just, for example, at the uh, share of capital investment in Canada that's going into the housing sector, uh, it's very high. That was true in a lot of the countries that suffered quite badly during the crisis. Now, I'm not predicting a crisis here, but if so much of your investment is going into housing as opposed to uh, plant and equipment, infrastructure, uh, information technology, all of the other types of capital that make us more productive and help us earn the incomes with which, among other things, we can pay those mortgages off, you have to worry that you've skewed the economy in a way that's not that helpful to our long-term living standards. So what's the solution? Uh, one of the things that I think uh, needs to be said about the housing situation in Canada is that it has been a bit of a constraint on monetary policy. Uh, the Bank of Canada is playing a bit of a balancing game in thinking about what interest rate setting would make sense for how much slack there is in the economy, how much inflationary pressure. And there have been times when probably that would have led them to have interest rates a little lower than what they've done. And the thing that has held them back, the other part of the balancing act, is that they've been worried about what low interest rates might do for, for the housing bubble, uh, if it is a bubble. But, but they've been concerned that there's too much lending and borrowing and too much activity in that particular sector. Uh, so far, so good. Um, I do think that they've done a nice job of calibrating that. Uh, but the more stimulus there is from the fiscal side, if the government decides that there's going to be some additional subsidy for first-time home buyers or some kind of equity uh, stake at some kind of a concessional rate on the part of the CMHC, all of those things from fiscal policy are unhelpful because they make the uh, macro uh, concerns that the Bank of Canada has on that side just a bit more acute. And that might constrain the central bank from doing what it otherwise would think to do if the economy is looking a little weaker and they want to lower interest rates. So it's helpful if fiscal policy and monetary policy don't work at cross purposes. So as we move into this federal election, what's jumping out at you as a key element that we need to be focused on to prepare ourselves for the possibility, if not the inevitability, of a U.S.-driven recession thanks to Trump's trade war with China and others? There are a lot of things that you would ideally like to see governments do to respond uh, to that threat. One of them, and it's uh, perhaps a weak note to start on because we are dealing with Donald Trump and, uh, and a quite protectionist Congress, is to ensure that our trade relations with the U.S. are as good as we can make them. Can we make them any better, considering we need the USMCA approved, and this impeachment inquiry seems to be derailing that timeline? It's enormously difficult to do it at a high level right now, uh, and, and we could talk for quite a while about the numerous layers uh, that there are to that game, uh, including operating much, much on a local level, uh, congressional level, and, and the behind-the-border uh, efforts to try and keep commerce flowing. Uh, all of that's very valuable, and I think Canada's done a pretty good job at that on the whole. Uh, you have to keep doing that. They are going to be our biggest trading partner uh, for as long as uh, far ahead as we can see, and so that's just reality. You have to put, make that your first priority. Uh, there are other things uh, that we can be doing, and the government talks a good game and has actually delivered, uh, both under the previous Conservative government and the, and the current Liberal government. Uh, for example, free trade, freer trade with Europe, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, all of these things are helpful as well. 
internal trade. I can't resist uh, making a quick comment about that. You're not going to tell me about beer between the provinces, are you? It is a slog. Uh, it is a slog. The uh, the high-profile silly examples do often tend to be the high-profile silly examples because they're peculiarly hard to get rid of for the same reason that international trade liberalization is tough. The people who benefit from protection are usually quite conscious that they're benefiting from it. The people who are being hurt by it typically aren't as uh, aware of it and aren't as concerted in their efforts. Uh, but if you're concerned about the international trade environment, it does make sense to try and limber up the internal market because there are some gains from trade to be had there and we don't have to deal with Donald Trump. Uh, so uh, that's attractive as well. Uh, one of the things that's probably worth mentioning just by way of uh, looking ahead here is that if there is a downturn, uh, one of the things that happens in Canada typically uh, when we see weakness in the global economy, weakness in commodity prices, is that the dollar falls. Uh, and that's a very natural reaction to uh, uh, adverse developments abroad if they're, if they're making Canada's terms of trade worse. Once upon a time, the Bank of Canada would tend to raise interest rates in response to a weak currency, and that would just make things worse. Uh, lately, though, and, and for a number of years, the Bank of Canada has just allowed that to happen. People looking ahead should be thinking about that. If there is a downturn, it's quite likely that the Canadian dollar will be lower. Uh, that will cushion some of the blow for us. Uh, it's entirely a natural reaction. Uh, if you're thinking of taking a holiday abroad, you might like to uh, think about a staycation instead. And of course, that's all part of the adjustment that cushions the uh, effect on the economy. So letting letting that adjustment happen as well uh, is, is, is just part of the game. Uh, and then to revisit the main topic that we've been uh, on for most of this conversation, you want governments to have the fiscal capacity to uh, let themselves go into deficit, uh, do a bit more borrowing in the short run uh, with that confidence, not just uh, in terms of what they themselves are saying, but that the population itself believes that this is a temporary thing. They've got a plan to get out. And therefore, as a business or as a household, uh, you're just going to continue to uh, uh, live your life much as you did before instead of retrenching out of fear. Let's come full circle to what you need to see from the major parties going into this election that will help protect us in the event of a recession. During the election campaign itself, uh, it can be a little bit discouraging because so much of what you, uh, the commentary that you hear about anything that's going on, uh, it could be economic policy, it could be the peccadilloes of uh, some of the party leaders or, or the candidates, um, gets framed uh, in the context of if it moves the polls, it matters. If it doesn't move the polls, it doesn't matter. Uh, deficits don't move the polls. It's pretty clear that there's not a whole lot of traction uh, in the electorate for some of the commitments that are being made, uh, possibly because the people who are persuadable by those types of arguments have already made their choice. You're not necessarily playing for the swing voter when you're talking about tax policy or, 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 or bottom line, because that group is quite engaged already. That group's been paying attention for a number of years, and they've probably uh, uh, made their opinions already. So it can be a, a bit of a disappointing environment. What you do want to see, I think, as much as anything else, is a bit of an absence of bad news. You do not want to see governments cementing themselves into positions that they're going to feel compelled to deliver on, even if it doesn't make sense. Uh, weirdly, that could have been the case if uh, governments were predicting that they were going to get back to surplus come hell or high water, and then we did have a recession. Uh, that wouldn't necessarily be the right thing to do. Uh, but at the moment, I think that uh, the appropriate uh, stance for governments is to remember uh, that there is life after October 21st. 
there's life after 2020. Uh, we ought to be playing a long game here. Uh, one of the CD Howe Institute's ongoing projects looks at intergenerational issues. Uh, what kind of a burden and benefit are we passing on to uh, today's youngsters or even the people who are going to be born tomorrow? And at the moment, Canada has not done too bad a job by developed world standards. There are certainly countries that are in much worse shape. But the newborns are coming into a world with a whole lot of obligations to service existing debt, pay for uh, their older counterparts' uh, health care. There's a lot of bills that are going to come due, public sector pensions. Uh, and so what we need to see is governments preserving some flexibility to deal with that, because it may not move the polls during the election campaign, but it's going to make a big difference uh, 10, 20, 30 years down the road to how prosperous we are and how able we are to sustain the programs that are uh, getting such a high profile during the election. Bill Robson is the president and CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. Still to come at the C.D. Howe, a story of digital transformation. On October 18th at the Institute's Toronto office, the C.D. Howe welcomes Paul Demaray III, the senior vice president of Power Corporation, on the evolution of business today. And join us in Ottawa the day after the federal election. On October 22nd, the Institute hosts a post-election analysis luncheon with C.D. Howe Senior Fellow Glenn Hodgson, Director of Research Alexandra Laurent, and Senior Policy Analyst Parisa Mahoubi. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute Podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.